My life is really um, complex. There are things about me that you wouldn't understand. Now playing's Batman Movie Retrospective Series. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Part of the Now Playing DC Comics Movie Series. Ah, uh, gives a fella a good feeling to know they're up there doing their job. With our all-star hosts, Jacob the Dark Knight. You're just too much fun. <laughs> Stuart, the Boy Reviewer. You wanted me. Here I am. And the Clown Prince of Podcasting, Arnie. And I thought my jokes were bad. Each week at NowPlayingPodcast.com, we'll be watching another Batman film, ending with a weekend of release review of Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. What are you protecting me from? Have you ever danced with a spoiler in the pale moonlight? This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. What do you suppose something like this does to a kid? Listener discretion is advised. Enough monkey business. We've got work to do. Here we go. Today we're discussing The Dark Knight, starring Christian Bale, Michael Caine, Heath Ledger, Gary Oldman, Aaron Eckhart, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and Morgan Freeman, directed by Christopher Nolan. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and do you know how I got these scars? Yeah, from the podcast last week. (laughs) You didn't recommend it! The lashing of the listeners that have been given to me (laughs) has left me with these scars. I can believe it. I'm not going to say you don't deserve it, but hey, we all go through it. God knows we all have opinions that go contrary with the masses. I should know. I'm Stuart in L.A. This podcast deserves a better class of hosts, but you're stuck with me. This is Jacob. And we are here discussing The Dark Knight, first superhero movie I can think of to not have the hero name in the title. Right. This announces if what we suspected last time that they were going back to some of those big comics that you guys reviewed over at Books and Nachos. This confirmed it by saying that it's Dark Knight. This is like Dark Knight Returns. I mean, I haven't read it, but I've listened to your shows on it, and I do feel like maybe they didn't literally adapt that, but that's what they're going for in this new version here. Forget all of the Batmans that you saw before. We're finally getting to comic book Batman on the screen. And what's funny is, I took it to go way back to our Batman 89 conversation as marketing. It doesn't need to say Batman the Dark Knight, the same way the 89 posters didn't need to say Batman, you could just have the symbol. 
I thought they were just trying to be a little edgy, a little creative, but I didn't read a whole lot into it. And I'm not going to lie, I get confused sometimes. The fact that Batman Returns came out long before Batman Begins, I sometimes get those two confused. There's a lot of movies with Batman in the title. It might as well change up the brands. You're definitely changing it another way. So, yeah, it's Dark Knight now. I like it. And what I love about this title is, one, it works for Batman. He's called the Dark Knight in the comics. But Nolan, being heavy with themes in these films, this is literally a theme of the film, the idea of the Dark Knight. Yeah, we're in the difficult, darkest moment. I feel like in trilogies, the second chapter is the place that it goes deepest into the hole before it emerges and becomes Ewoks. But yes. (laughs) The rumors I'm hearing is next week goes darker, so we'll see. (laughs) Yes, indeed. I can't wait. But Dark Knight, I could wait for this. As I said last time, I walked away from Batman Begins so completely apathetic that when I heard they were doing another one, I didn't care. (laughs) Heath Ledger as the Joker? Eh, He couldn't be Jack Nicholson. I've seen a couple Heath Ledger movies, 10 Things I Hate About You. He's got nothing on Nicholson. This came out. (laughs) All the talk was about Heath Ledger's death. I'm like, "Mm, no, not going to see it. And we were at Comic-Con when this opened. We saw it shortly after and... The word of mouth is what pulled us in more than anything. And I went in, kind of like, all right, but it's probably just going to be like Batman Begins, and walked out a convert. It didn't help that in between, he'd made The Prestige, another film I don't like of Nolan's. (laughs) Arnie, you and I are just in loggerheads all the time. Everything you say, I just know that I'm disagreeing entirely in the other direction here. I couldn't have been more jazzed about this. Now, suddenly the non-superhero guy, this is the movie I must see in 2008. I care so much about this, I pay money to go see I Am Legend just to see the opening of the movie that they kind of tagged on as a teaser. They didn't put out a trailer. They actually put out the very first scene in this movie, the bank heist. And I was willing to pay $20 IMAX prices just to see a scene. I was so excited. I couldn't wait to find out what was going to happen next. I felt like the setup had given me everything that I wanted, and now it was going to get real good because, yes, we had Joker. It's funny, Artie, because I liked Batman Begins. I never saw it in the theater. I saw it on DVD a year or two afterwards. But kind of like you, Heath Ledger, the, the, the dude from A Knight's Tale, where they carve like Nike signs into medieval knights and 10 things I hate about you. Really? That dude. The Joker? Really? I didn't know Ledger from much. I'm fortunate that I don't watch those kinds of youth-oriented movies and have that stigma to them. I knew him from a one-two punch. He had done a Terry Gilliam movie, Brothers Grimm, and I remember being totally surprised that he was better than Matt Damon. And he had done Brokeback Mountain, which I think impressed the hell out of everyone that saw it. He was amazing in that movie, and I anointed him at that point an actor who could do anything. Much like Bale, he has the gifts and physicality to do anything, and I'll follow him. Well, and the thing is, as more and more reviews came out, it just started building critical mass. And so I ended up going out there opening weekend, waited hours in line, bought my ticket a couple of hours in advance. I mean, this was a Friday afternoon. The thing was sold out, packed theater. It was a tough ticket in town. I got to say, I fought to get it, but I did get my IMAX opening day. I saw it twice in IMAX, so I was primed. I wanted it. I wanted to have the biggest and best experience to experience where we're going to go. But what was the factor? Why was this such a phenomenon? It's hard to say. I feel like it's a perfect storm of events that happening. That, okay, on one hand, we're getting Joker. That's just big news anyway. Any Batman movie with Joker is a big deal, right? That's the villain you want to see. 
I don't know. I understand we've kind of had the conversation who's the major villain. The Joker was the major villain. Before going in, it had a been there, done that quality to me. It felt like we'd seen the Joker already. It felt like a redo. Okay, but had we had this kind of amazing crow-like spin where suddenly the actor that gives the performance dies, lives to complete, but never lives to see the end result. The fact that he's playing like this zombie-looking clown, doesn't that just create a myth instantly? Doesn't that make it legendary that Heath Ledger is this Joker and that he's died? I think that's overplayed. It didn't make the crow half a billion dollars. There might have been a little bit of a curiosity factor, but that doesn't make a movie as much as this movie made just because one of the lead actors died. I disagree. I think it helps tremendously because of the publicity. All that free publicity. This is Batman! You said they don't even have to put the name in the title to sell it. Now you're saying it needs publicity? But keep in perspective, this Batman is bigger than any Batman movie by double. It is bigger than Batman at this point. Batman was always a hit. This is a phenomenon. Yeah, you don't need to put Batman's name in the title to get to your core audience, but to get to all the audience, to get Marjorie, who does not like Batman at all, and who really hated Batman Begins, to be the one dragging me to the theater for this. To get my mother and her nursing friends excited about it. You know, like, ooh, you know, like, Mom, you don't even know who Heath Ledger is, and now you can't wait to see him as the Joker. That's so foreign to me, but I'll take your guys' word for it. Yeah, it just really created a critical mass that is beyond what a normal film does. This film, as I mentioned last podcast, I've already reviewed it once, we know what I think, but as good as it is... To get the money it got and the accolades it got, a superhero film to be given an acting Academy Award, there's something more than just a good movie here. Yeah, and you know what? It helps that this movie looked good. I mean, you know, that was the thing. The advertising, the marketing campaign, the genius of releasing a whole scene in IMAX. I remember people watching that scene, the bank robbery, and after it was over, people got up and left. That was what they were there. They had paid $20 just to sit there and experience it. They were excited about that. I mean, I feel like every time you saw a clip of the movie, it was something you wanted to see. And to know that this is the final performance of somebody that's due the iconic Batman villain. You talk about escalation. I don't know how The Dark Knight Rises is going to be able to match the level of hype and anticipation that this movie achieved. I mean, it peaked here. It's an uphill battle to get people as care as much about the movie next week as they did at the time in 2008. It was an election year. The fact that this movie kind of plays into the themes of the time and people were so keyed up about that election, I feel like there were numerous factors that made this not just a hit, but a mega phenomenon. Yeah, it was a cultural touchstone. I've said many times on this podcast that I felt like in the 80s, we had a movie of the year where it was E.T., then it was Return of the Jedi, and then it was Ghostbusters. There was always the one movie every year, and with the blockbuster of the week, it felt we lost that. I can say in 2008, despite being the year Iron Man came out, the cultural touchstone the one movie that year was this one, and not just because it was the top grossing, because that didn't help a lot of other big movies to stay memorable, but this 
hit a nerve with people in such a way. And yeah, I've read on a couple of comic book sites and a couple of blogs, oh, there's no doubt Dark Knight Rises will eclipse the Dark Knight's box office. Uh, no. Just no. I'm hoping it continues an evolution and is as good or better than Dark Knight. I'd love to see a great, great film to review next week, but beat the box office. It just doesn't feel like in this summer of the Avengers breaking records and Spider-Man coming out also that it has the critical mass that Dark Knight had where it was ubiquitous. To me, it's not even important. I don't care how popular a movie is. I care about how good it is. It can be the worst one of the trilogy. If it's half as good as what we've seen, I'm going to love it. I don't necessarily agree, as listeners last week know. <laughs> all right, all right. You keep digging up the past night us, Arnie. I just want to point that out. You keep reminding them. Do you know how I got these scars? It's because I recommended Batman Forever. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to change every time, folks. All right. Well, clearly we're three people that can't wait to talk about this movie. So let's talk about the plot, Arnie. Nine months have passed since the events in Batman Begins and things are improving in Gotham. Lieutenant Gordon is head of a major crimes unit cracking down on the mob and new DA Harvey Dent is waging a one-man war on organized crime. All of this progress is inspired by Batman standing up to the criminals. But a new element is introduced in the form of the Joker, a crazy criminal who wears clown makeup like war paint. He first steals $68 million from the mob just to kind of prove he can, then goes to the organized mobs and says he can fix their problem. He can kill Batman in exchange for half of all of their wealth. A bloody, crazy war begins between the Joker and those who enforce the law in Gotham. A judge is killed, as is the police commissioner. So to lure out Joker, Dent, Batman, and Gordon fake Gordon's death. Joker is captured, but it was all part of his plan. While in jail, Joker's men kidnap Dent and Rachel Dawes, Dent's fiance and Bruce's childhood sweetheart, and Batman is forced to choose. Rachel dies while Dent is saved, though the skin on half his face is burned away in the explosion. Joker continues to escalate, threatening to tear the island of Gotham apart, and while the people evacuate, he loads two transport ferries with explosives and gives each boat the detonator for the other. The passengers on one boat must choose to blow up all the people on the other boat, or both will explode at midnight. Batman goes after the Joker, stringing him up to be captured by the SWAT team, but meanwhile Dent, cracked from losing his face and his girl, goes on a killing spree for all who were involved in Rachel's death, allowing the flip of a coin to choose if the criminals live or die. Dent ends now with Commissioner Gordon's family, thinking if Dent lost his family for fighting crime, Gordon should too. Batman stops Dent, throwing him off a roof, but then tells Gordon the city must think that he, Batman, killed the criminals, not Dent. Dent's image as a beacon of hope for Gotham had to remain untarnished, so Batman becomes persecuted and runs off into the shadows as credits roll. Last time, the movie kicked off with a flurry of bats creating the signal. This time, blue flames creating the symbol. I'm wondering, the color blue, you know, the blue flower last time. Is this a color motif going on? Are you picking up on the skies? Or is this just a pretty color? No, I think there is something going on. The last one begins, it was kind of that orangish feel to it. And that was kind of the palette scheme. Yeah, there's a blue flower. But I felt when you're in Gotham, especially at night, there's that grimy sunset through a polluted sky. It had that feel to it, that orange feel. This one has a different color palette to it. There's the sonar vision we'll see later on that has that blue feel. So I, I think he is using a subtle color scheme here. It's almost like blue kind of represents fear. And here, fear is escalating the flames. You know, I'm expecting something to burn even hotter. And 
boy, it sure does right from the get-go. And I got to ask, Arnie, because one of the first things I noticed, besides the beautiful, huge IMAX vision here, you talked about the score. Did you buy the score for this film? I did. And again, it's not exactly great listening. (laughs) There's a couple tracks that I go back to, but mostly it's a little bit painful. Because one of the things I noticed, and I've seen this film, I think you said you've seen it a dozen times. I've probably seen it the same amount. This is a film I've gone back to over and over. But the Joker's theme which is like a single buzzing note. And that's what you start off with. This this drone, it's like a bee buzzing, a fly buzzing around your head, annoying you. But I was so gripped by this Joker's theme, which is just a note. And I noticed that right away. I don't know how Nolan works this out. They don't do a lot of extra materials on the DV. I certainly would watch the behind the scenes footage if I could, but he's got two people doing the music here. On one hand, there's James Newton Howard, which is kind of known for working with M. Night and doing more bombastic scores. And then there's Hans Zimmer, who did Inception and who tends to work in a way that's more kind of new agey. And I feel like I don't know how these two work together, but somehow two is stronger than one in this case. I feel like I don't know how it comes to be, but I liked the music last time. I felt like thematically it fit. It may not be something on your iPod, Arnie, but I do feel like this score, it really works for the setting the environment that we're going to spend the next two and a half hours in. Oh, I completely agree. I think a score should first and foremost service the film and enhance the mood of the film. When we talked about Elfman's score, I mentioned I really like listening to it as a piece of music, but at times Elfman's scores can detract from the film by overwhelming. You're focusing too much on the music and not enough on what's going on here. The two people, though, I have to wonder if one does do the more orchestral, classical score... That would be Howard, I think. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm leaning. And the other is the more atonal, atmospheric noise. Zimmer, yeah, that's my guess. Without having any confirmation from bonus materials, that's what it feels like. And this is a battle about two different people. Batman and Joker, I don't know how these composers work it out about who does what scene, but their work is brilliant here. I had to go back. I watched this movie twice for this retrospective, but I decided after my second watching, I'd go back and watch this opening a third time because... All these clowns in the masks are robbing this bank, and they all have their tasks to do, and I'm watching them, and I'm like, what's the Joker doing during this scene? Because I really wanted to know, is he the one punching people? Is he the one stealing the money? Because when you get to know Joker in this film, and you do get to know Joker, none of that felt like Joker. He never felt like a worker bee to me. And so when I watched it the third time, I paid real close attention to which mask was the Joker the second time. And the third time I'm watching him and he's the one who's handing everybody grenades. Yeah, he doesn't do much in this. He hands a few grenades and then he tricks one of the other criminals into getting shot by saying the bank manager used up all his shotgun shells. Most of the time he's just kind of standing around, which is kind of like the Joker. He puts a plan into place and then watches it unfold. That's absolutely it. He has nothing invested in getting this money out. He does. He will end up burning it. It's not about a bank robbery. It's about manipulating people. And right from the get-go, he's doing that. These people are here. They're six clowns. They think they're working for Joker, who isn't there. He's this mythic character. They're talking about him. And one by one, the greedy guys are shooting the partner and whittling down the amount of participants so that they think they'll get more and more of the final share. It's a classic Joker plot, and he's just sitting there laughing. I'm sure if we saw him take off the mask earlier, he'd have a huge grin on his face. Doesn't he always? Well, I guess he can't help it. (laughs) (laughs) But 
in addition to all of that, I'm glad that there's one of them smart enough to realize, well, if I was told to kill guy A, that means somebody else is going to kill me. Again, what I love here is that the Joker, his whole planning is based on that people are selfish and they're going to look out for themselves. And so does he plan that this one guy would figure it out? Because he gets him to stand right where the bus backs up. So it hits him. He's like, I know this one person's going to figure out he's self-interested. He's going to figure out the plot and that he could get more money if he could kill me. So I'm going to guide him to stand in this one spot. So when the bus backs up, it kills him. And I don't even have to shoot the guy. He is a master of assumption. He thinks that he knows how people work and plays into their darkest impulses. And that's what we love about him, right? That he knows us so well, that he knows the dark side and can bring it out of all of us. I think that is part of his charm and it's part of his dark sense of humor. And one thing I love, and we don't talk about them much on Now Playing, is a good heist film. I love like an Ocean's Eleven or something. And in just this five or six minute opening, it's such a great heist. And the fact that it's a school bus that comes in and takes the money, and then when it pulls out, it's in a line of school buses. And he's obviously doing this as people are going probably home from school. Or a field trip. Yeah, I just love the intricacy and the detail of his plot. And man immediately, in the first few minutes, I'm more invested in this film than I ever was in the last one, because this is something I'm enjoying watching. It's a great caper. It's tickling my intelligence. It's like, yeah, that's great. But what about, oh, yeah, that's great. In the first six minutes, I was on the ride. And if this was just a lesser film, if this, if just Goyer had penned this film, <laughs> there's this whole thing about how this is a mob bait. And they tie that in. They start giving hints. Oh, it's not calling out to 911. It called out to a different number. The bank manager pulls out a gun and starts shooting, saying, do you know whose bank this is? That could have all just been dropped later on. Oh, yeah, by the way, that bank you hit, Joker, was a mob one. And we'll deal with that subplot when we get to it. But no, Nolan starts tying it all in right away. This script is a labyrinth, and every scene is essential. Essential. The more you can watch this movie and dive deeper, you will realize how everything is important. And I love scripts and stories that don't waste any time or any character, that everyone down to the cop in the background is playing a role here. It reinforces the idea that I love, that I mentioned last time. It's about the whole city, that the constructs of Batman and Joker are bigger than the two actors that are playing them. And I'm just going to say this now. Because I think this is going to be a theme throughout the film. Stuart, with Batman Begins, you brought up 9-11 and fear. To me, if I want to show a film to my kids what it was like living in post-9-11 America and the paranoia, and this is the film I'm going to show them. This is the film that speaks to me about what happened post-9-11 with politics, with the public discourse. And it starts off right away. You get this bank manager saying criminals in this town used to believe in things, bringing up this idea of old villains. You guys are going to be doing these Bond films and talking about the Cold War, you know, when wars used to be about fascism or communism and there's ideals behind it. And now here's this new player. There's no idealism behind it. It's something new. It's not a government that's fighting us. It's this lone player. And it's all coming out right away in this film to me. You're right. That is the symbol of 
Al-Qaeda. That is what a terrorist cell means. It's something that can't be controlled or negotiated with because it's smaller than a country. It has no borders. You're absolutely right. They're starting the metaphors early, and I'll go ahead and say it. They're doing it better. I didn't think that the last movie had misstepped in the way that it represented 9-11, but this one, the ideas are cleaner, stronger. I might have to retract what I said about Batman Begins being as good as Dark Knight. This movie, right out of the gate, there's no moment where I'm not exhilarated. Well, I think that the last one, again, I said it then, tried some broad strokes at some post-9-11 things. But here, this isn't 9-11. This is strictly War on Terror 2004 to 2008 era, second term George Bush Cheney type stuff. While they're discussing some of the broad strokes there too, I do feel like here, the metaphors are more well thought out better implemented, and done so in a way that isn't preachy. It still creates a good superhero film, as well as just a good film overall, while at the same time being that time capsule that you're talking about, Jacob. Well, you guys finally get the redemption that you wanted with Scarecrow. The next scene, if we've seen what Joker can do, we see what Batman can do. He can finally grab Scarecrow. I love that Scarecrow's like a two-bit drug dealer at this point, and like the mob's pissed at him because he's like, dude, your drugs are the worst drugs ever. No one wants to take him again. <laughs> I just was happy to see Killian Murphy back. It felt to me almost like a make good. Like maybe something was left on the editing room floor last time, and it just killed the pacing, but they're like, we need to tie up that loose end. But it's great to see him here. I wish he had a bigger part. Still love the actor. And he may. Who's to say he won't be back next week? IMDB. Okay, maybe. I'm open to the idea that we're expanding the borders. Any of these characters we see at the beginning could come back in the third movie. That really, all bets are off. I would love it if he did, just because I love his character. He was one of the bright points of the last movie for me, as far as characters go. I loved seeing him here. He's hysterical. I don't need help. Not my diagnosis. Love it. Stuart, you talked about economy of storytelling. This scene, it just doesn't do one thing. It does, like, three things. We get the wrap-up. What happened to the Scarecrow? We get, why does Batman need a new outfit? This shows how it's kind of clunky. You can't really fight dogs. I I love that we get Batman fighting dogs in a film, finally. Yes, the dogs will come back for him at the end, yeah. And then we get these vigilantes that Batman has inspired. He talked about in the Batman Begins that he wanted to inspire people. And now we're seeing how he's inspiring. And it's just not through the law with Rachel or with Lieutenant Gordon. But now there are these vigilantes. And I had a geek out moment here because it reminded me of something from Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns. The Sons of Batman. These gangsters that once Batman defeats their boss, they all put Batman insignias on their face and run out with shotguns to blow up criminals being inspired by Batman. So it works thematically and it totally works on a geek level for me, just loving the comic books. For so long, we've complained that origin stories, where do they go after this? This seems like the logical progression about what happened last week. We saw him want to be an inspirational figure of fear and intimidation. It's worked. 
that's his curse this time. You know, I do think that that's great. And the joke, it's played for laughs, but it's a very valid question. What's the difference between these guys and Bruce? He responds, hockey pants. But the truth (laughs) is, what is the difference? You know, that's going to be a question as he considers retirement. The interesting thing here is Bruce feels that he's done all he can do. He's looking to pass the mantle. He's looking to give up Batman. He doesn't want to do this forever. And I think that's totally cool. That's exactly where he would be at this point in the story. Inspired, now you guys run with it. The city can rule itself. I'm not trying to be a dictator. And in fact, we'll find as he goes on that what he's really looking for is a way out. He wanted to inspire people, but not in the way of imitating him to the point of stealing his persona and doing what he does. He wanted to be an extreme example to try to get things back on the path. And what this army of Batman does is drives home the fact that things are so broken, this is the response. He wants a face. He's done all he can do behind a mask. Someone needs to be the symbol for... For Gotham. Someone needs to show their face. That's who he's looking for, and he looks for it in the new DA. Harvey Dent, played by Aaron Eckhart. Another actor like Killian Murphy, who I really like in everything I see. I first saw him in a movie you introduced me to, Stuart, that became one of my favorites, In the Company of Men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got a real leer. I mean, there's just something about him that has always been caustic. Like, you just don't trust him. He's kind of handsome, but you feel like with that chin and that jawline, he could just tear you apart. I mean, he's fearful. I'm intimidated by him, and I think he is a great match. If he's the pawn caught between Joker and Batman, well, he's got a little bit of ledger in him. He's got a little bit of bail in him. It's perfect casting here. I totally go with the idea of him both as a figure of inspiration and a future figure of fear. Yeah, I wasn't familiar with Aaron Eckhart's work. The only other film I saw him in was Paycheck. Oof. That, yeah, that really confused me because that was not Harvey Dent on that screen. Eckhart blows me away. Just about everyone blows me away in this film with their acting, but so many strong performance, and he's just another one in this film, another great performance. Because of In the Company of Men, I will never see him not as a creepy presence. He will always have that really, really dark, sadistic side to him in my mind. And so seeing him here... He's such a good actor that I buy him as the stand-up DA. I really do. But when he makes that turn later in the film, I also go, ah, there's the guy I know. And so there we have our trio of crime fighters in Gotham, one on the streets as a cop, one on the streets at night as a vigilante, one in the courts, and... I like these players. Oldman is back again as Commissioner Gordon. I always kind of thought of his return as a question mark. I mean, he's Gary Oldman, and Commissioner Gordon seemed like a bit of a thankless role. When I heard he was coming back, I kind of thought, why? He didn't get to play Beethoven and kill people. What was his point? But here he has got a much larger role. He's much more central a character to this plot. I think one of Nolan's strengths is that he's doing these Batman films that for me at least, because I also consider Batman Begins good, even when Batman's not on the screen, I'm engaged. Like, when Bruce Wayne is over in Asia training, I'm engaged. Here, when we're getting, like, internal affairs and the police department, Dent and Gordon bickering back and forth about who's more corrupt, I forget that I'm watching a superhero movie and I'm just watching a crime drama right now. And I'm just as engaged. 
That's absolutely right. I mean, I watched the HBO series The Wire, and that has like 40 different people and all this moral ambiguity. That's how this movie feels paced and cut, and every scene, I'm delighted to see whoever's going to walk into it. It doesn't matter. And to my point, I said it last time, I feel it's even more true now. Batman is a construct. They are building a myth. They are building a legend. No one is Batman, per se. Yes, Bruce is the guy that puts on the armor and goes out there and does the fist fighting, but he could not be Batman without Gordon, without this DA, without Rachel. Also coming back into the picture, although looking a bit different. We have declared that recasting here on Now Playing the best recasting in all of history. Now that we're actually covering this movie, I learned in my research... They offered the role back to Katie Holmes. Katie Holmes walked away. I heard it differently. I mean, you know, you hear different things and you're going to. And of course, people counter when offers are rejected. But what I heard was that Christopher Nolan was so disgusted about the way the Tom Cruise, Katie Holmes courtship played out in the tabloids that he didn't want to bring in that nonsense and cloud the hype of his movie. That's his standpoint on that, that he didn't want Katie. She didn't like the way she had behaved in doing press, maybe on the set, I'm not sure, but that he was looking for an improvement in this area. The only quote I could find attributed to him was that he asked for her to come back. I could not find anything, and I searched, because that's the story I'd heard in Scuttlebutt as well. But in trying to find any articles, trying to find any quotes, can't find that. I can find that she was offered to come back, and it is suspect that she chose to do Mad Money with Queen Latifah instead. <laughs> but that is the official story. The only way it could have worked is if they got Tom Cruise to play the Joker. Then I would have bought it. I'd be like, yes, this makes sense. I like, I want Batman to save her from the crazy laughing man. I would have not bought that ticket. <laughs> I might have. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that would have been a different way of looking at our current society, the tabloid side. But you know what? She wasn't strong. Yeah, I'm not going to say she was terrible, but she was not strong in the last movie. I like Maggie Gyllenhaal. You ever fall in love with an actress just for one movie? I saw the movie Secretary. I think it's a wonderful, twisted, dark, romantic comedy. She's fantastic in it. I don't care what she does for the rest of her life. I'll love her for that movie, and I'm happy to see her. I've seen her in a handful of things. I can't say that I've loved her. I can't say that I had anything disliking her. Before this, Donnie Darko was where I knew her most from, but I think she's very good here. I was a little worried going into this, especially since I thought there might have been a little nepotism. I mean, Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal were together on the last movie. They needed a replacement. Now you got Maggie Gyllenhaal. I felt like maybe it was, hey, let me bring my friend's sister over, but I think she does really well here. Yes, Maggie Gyllenhaal gives a better performance here, but she doesn't try to erase what had been done before. I actually see her studying the best facets of Rachel as portrayed by Katie Holmes and copying it, but doing it better. I mean, I feel like she took the character that Katie Holmes played and escalated it. She didn't do her own thing. She did what had been done. And that's nice because, you know, I think continuity people like to see the same people come back even when they're not very good. And it probably called some grousing that, you know, Maggie Gyllenhaal isn't the same thing as Katie Holmes, but she does her best here. And I agree. I'm happy that she's going to be caught in the middle here, too. It's implied that she might have wanted to get with Bruce at the end of the movie, that baby Batman is what kept them from becoming a couple. It's like the end of Spider-Man 1. She says, the man I love never came back. Maybe someday when Gotham no longer needs Batman, I'll see him again. But when Bruce became Batman, 
it was just Batman. And she even says that you're just Batman. Bruce Wayne is gone. And that's who she loved. She's just so difficult to please. Boy, when he's pulling out guns, she's slapping him. Don't do that. And then when he goes away, he's like, I never see you. And then he comes back. He's this altruistic guy. And she's like, ah. The point of the matter is, is that she's literally engaged to her boss and that she's going to go with Dent and Bruce has some fantasy. I think it's on his side, really. I didn't know that she had promised him anything. I think it's from his side that when he retires from Batman, he can be normal and she's going to be the one that make him normal. Well, no, that's what she said at the end of the last movie, is maybe someday when Batman's no longer needed, the man I loved will return. That's an implied promise that she'd be there waiting, but no, she moved on. Yeah. I love that, again, these layers that Bruce Wayne, we think of Batman, he's so altruistic, but he has a, a selfish side here. He wants Gotham to cure itself so he could get with the chick. Well, I think, yes, he wants to get with the chick, but I think getting with the chick would make him feel complete. You know, it would make him resemble his father and the marriage that he had. We didn't talk much of the last movie, but there was very few scenes with his father, but there was a real warmth and camaraderie. I liked him. I was sad that the Waynes had been executed the way they, they were. I would have been happy with a movie that had featured them more. I think Bruce idolizes that. I think that it's understandable that he would want to create that and embrace his father's identity again as he moves out of his dark night phase and yet strangely what i also get out of this though through some of the other characters talking about him through the scene where he's asleep in the boardroom is that he's still playing the crazy playboy and that he's still seen as that reckless thing in order to hide his nocturnal missions that's how Bruce Wayne has always been played, that he puts on this act, he runs around with the girl, and the interesting thing is, in the comics, he does hook up once in a while, he has a kid. This is like this weird asexual Batman that puts on this act to run around with the girls, but he's like so dedicated to this war on crime. Does he ever kiss a girl in these films? Like every other Batman film, he hooks up with a chick, he gets the kiss. Not here, not with Nolan's Batman. No, he's using this ballerina as a front, and at the end of the day, it's just a kind of byproduct that he gets to ruin a date with Dent and Rachel because they're going to see the ballet and he's closed the show so that he can have this cover that he's going to be on a boat with all the ballerinas when in fact you're right he is just thinking about how he can be Batman next and his tack here is interesting you mentioned the bank and that it was proved to be dirty that the money that was found there had actually been paid out by cops for drugs and the proof that it was in the vaults is that this was a mob bank and now batman needs to go after the economics again arnie you had a problem last time with rutger hauer i love the fact that they can get into issues like the economics here how does a mob fund itself where do they put their money this is sort of the way that this first act plays out i love it but here's where i want to start my comparisons to the last movie the last movie had that economic there and I couldn't figure out why. You said it was to ground it and to be adult and to add this realism. And there was so much going on last movie, but the whole movie, it felt like boxes were being checked off for the sake of explaining things away and creating that realism. Here, all of it is in service to the narrative. What we have here isn't just good filmmaking, which I felt we had last time. Here we have not good, great storytelling. Like, such a tight script that nothing, nothing is extraneous. The accountant brought in to investigate Lau's finances to see if it would be a good idea to have a joint venture. This contractor has his own whole subplot that when the whole thing ends, ties neatly into the main narrative. 
This is where it's clicking for me on every cylinder that the last movie didn't is because it's a coherent, cohesive story all about people, whereas the last one felt to me more about things and a jumble of ideas that didn't tie together. I'll give you this, Arnie, because it is done better here. I totally agree. And I think it's done so well here, it actually enhances Batman Begins. It shows Batman, I got to start moving the chess pieces. If I want to be able to spy on the mob, I got to have people in my own company that I trust that are running it so I could further spy on people. I mean, that's what he basically does here is he pulls together this venture so he could just check out Lao to see what he's up to. And I love that it goes global. He goes to Lao's company and he got, has to get with Lucius. How do I get out of a plane? And then how do I get back in? And the sonar, just like a submarine. Love that. <laughs> that was very good. Again, Morgan is great here. You know, he's really funny. I really wish that he could have a leading role where he is as charming as he is in these little bits. He doesn't need to be more in this movie, but I want more of him. There's just not enough Morgan. I just love him so much in this part. And he really does have fun when he goes to Hong Kong and he and Bruce get to team up against Lau. And I think what we see here is rendition, right? Lau's moved the money to Hong Kong. That's out of the jurisdiction of Batman and Gotham. Well, Batman's willing to break every law but the kill law, so he's going to leave Gotham and drag him back. I mentioned last time that I saw some of George Bush and Bruce Wayne. Come on, guys. You're starting to see it, right? These tactics are being called into question later, and they resemble that of the Bush administration. I really see Batman as kind of the American conscious. Which way are we going to go? Are we going to go with these more questionable tactics? We see Harvey Dent. He has the line. He calls it out early. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And you think of Bush. He was this pulled the country together after 9-11. And then you look at him eight years later. And you look at Harvey Dent's tactics. On the outside, oh, I'm going to keep the law. But he's got that double-sided coin so he could fake people out. And he's willing to use people to get around the law for him. I kind of see it, Batman as this middle ground. You know, are we going to go with the Joker who's just outright crazy? Are we going to go with this politician who says he's good, but he's got this darker side? Listen, I think the more you try to find direct real-world analogs to this movie, the more it breaks down. And if that's what they were trying to do, Nolan and Goyer, then they're just not very good at it. The more you try to say Batman is this, Joker is that, this situation is like this, it doesn't work out because there's no ambiguity here. There's none of that is Lau perhaps innocent. If Batman was going after his parents' killer under the guise of it being a mob thing, that would be a totally different situation. Here, Batman goes to Hong Kong to get a criminal who is outside of extradition and outside of jurisdiction and brings him back. Do you want to read other things into it? Sure. Were other things meant? Maybe. But the more you try to say this is this, the more it just breaks right apart. I don't think that it is written so that it's specifically George Bush up there fighting Osama bin Laden. But I do feel like, yeah, you talk about capturing the spirit of the times of the American conscious. I do feel like George Bush is a symbol. I do feel like they're playing with what he represents when they're characterizing Batman. That's all I'm really saying here. And that there are more than a few similarities in character, indeed, and his personal history that resemble that of President 43. 
This isn't simile. This is not George Bush is someone. George Bush is like Batman, but this is metaphor. This is speaking of the times, of the political climate, of the confusion amongst Americans. Is it right to torture someone if it's going to save the lives of a thousand people? Like, this is the dialogue that was going on in the country right now. This was heated, heated debate. And I think this is the metaphor for those times. It perfectly captures it. And it's no, it's not a one to one analog. But it is a metaphor. And the movie does get into that later on. I think that it does far better with some of the interrogation scenes that come up later when the Joker really gets involved than it does if we try to analyze every action of Batman and equate it to U.S. policy. That's all I'm saying is that I think there's a limit to how much we can really make these analogies and have them hold up. So I shouldn't ask whether Alfred is Dick Cheney. Just kidding. But you know, you get my point. Anyway, I could do it all day, but let's not. Let's keep on with the movie. Keep that for your college term papers. <laughs> I like Batman going global and going to Hong Kong in this movie. It really fits, and I like the more global feel. I like how it opens things up. I like that they did real location shooting and some more IMAX shooting, I think, here. At least my TV kept switching between letterbox and not. But Is it a mistake for the character to take him out of Gotham? Isn't he Gotham's protector? And if he's traveling the world enforcing it, does it weaken his mission statements? He's going after Lau to lock up all the criminals, all the mobsters in Gotham. So, again, he's going outside of the city boundaries, but it's directly benefiting the city. You know, I don't think it's foreign for Batman to go traveling around the world. Uh, one, One of my favorite comics that they did a few years ago, Batman Incorporated, was about Batman going around the world setting up a different Batman for like each country and and starting a brand, a corporation of Batman to protect the world. I I thought it was a lot of fun seeing him interact with different cultures. So it wasn't a problem for me. To your point, though, Arnie, this is the first time that Batman has felt not trapped, not in a claustrophobic environment. Tim Burton's Gotham defined Batman. He could exist in nowhere but in that gargoyle art deco environment it just made sense there and nowhere else here by actually having batman walking around going to cities that you and i could go to for me again it's all about plausibility and realism suddenly the world is about more than what's going on in gotham i love it i love it and i also think that it's really important i hope they're keeping up with it with the new movie this is the second movie to go to asia i think that this may be a recurring motif we may get this the next movie as well that batman's roots are with where he learned his trade with the league of shadows he's going back to asia not the same place obviously but i like that we're getting these ties it's not like he's going anywhere else in the world he's kind of going back to the place of his origin and while he's doing all this joker continues to infiltrate gotham's crime families i'm loving every second of this i'm connecting with all the characters and seeing how they intertwine but when joker's on the screen there's an energy and an electricity coming out of ledger's performance that really captivates. I went into this thinking, how could anyone outdo Nicholson? Nicholson did it. I mean, Nicholson even outdid Cesar Romero. But here, he's bringing such a wonderful malevolence that I feel that based on the comics we read for Books and Nachos, Jacob, and the animated movie we watched for this series, this is the closest I can ever imagine of a real-life actor being and realizing that comic book page character. Yeah, you could see him breaking out into song and dance like he does in The Killing Joke. 
just to torture Commissioner Gordon. Even the voice Ledger uses, it, it almost reminds me of Mark Hamill's voice that he used for the animated series, kind of this whiny, slightly higher pitched voice. And then he goes in this demonic, monstrous voice at times. And we saw that with the Joker Mask of the Phantasm, where he's a silly clown. And then he has this really dark side that comes out. It, you know, that was a kid's cartoon, but you could see that. When we first see the Joker in this film, not after the bank heist, but when he goes and talks to the mob, like right here, give Heath Ledger the, the Oscar just for this scene. You know, the acting he does, you know, one of them calls him crazy. He's like, I'm not. No, I'm not. He like generally seems hurt that someone would call him crazy and almost defensive. And he's just all over the place. But it's all controlled chaos. I think that's what the Joker really is. He says he doesn't plan anything, but he's this meticulous planner. And every line he delivers, he delivers a certain way for a reason. Like, he's so menacing in that way. The magic trick, that was the scene I think everyone talked about after this film, putting the pencil through the guy's eye. Ugh. Still gives me nightmares. He's so menacing, and it, and it all comes off from this first real scene where he addresses the mob bosses. Here's the thing for me. If we're comparing Jokers that we've seen, cartoon Joker, it's a little hard to because it was a cartoon, but Jack Nicholson was never scary. That's the problem. He was big. He was wickedly amusing. He was eating up the scenery. He never instilled fear in me. And this movie is about intimidation. That's what the themes have been about fear, controlling it, and how you use it. Heath Ledger is scary. He's the worst kind of scary because, yes, he's this paradox. On one hand, he is meticulous in his planning, but all his plans are for destroying order so that there is complete chaos and nothing goes according to plan. It's a frightening concept. It's the opposite of what a civilization and a city are trying to build. He is the destruction of modern society. He represents that, and that is scary. I feel like the fear factor is what really sells Ledger. On top of which, you're right, his unanticipated line deliveries, the electricity of the way he delivers lines, and let's just go ahead and compliment something that Ledger is not necessarily responsible for, but aids it immeasurably, the very goth-chic way that he looks this time. He's not fat, and he's got this smeary makeup with the scars. I mean, it's a different look for Joker that makes him look more like a zombie, or more like living dead. I feel like Scary is what they're going for, and they achieve it. And scary in that more realistic kind of way. I mean, he's not fallen into a vat of toxic chemicals. He's got scars. He's wearing makeup. I always wondered why the Joker's face was white. Was it makeup? Whatever. And again, you want to go back to some of these real-world analogs. I really was reminded of that Al-Qaeda video of the beheading of their captive when he starts killing the fake Batman. Sure, yes. Here's the thing that I really like. As much as they've gone back and shown the origin of Batman, I love the fact that we get no origin for Joker. We don't know where he comes from. We don't know why he has the scars. He makes it up as it goes along. It couldn't possibly be all the reasons that he says. He comes out of nowhere, and that does feel like terrorist cell. Like, all of a sudden, there's this evil, and we don't know where it came from. We don't know how to stop it. We don't know where it came from. I feel like yeah, you're right. The metaphors we're trying to make, not make too direct, but it's inevitable. He does feel like the kind of terror that was striking America and the world at the time of the release of this movie. 
I'll agree, especially when we get into some of his plots. I remember the paranoia. You mentioned anything, and oh, Al-Qaeda could come up with that idea and blow us up that way. I mean, they after all, they did have a shoe bomber and an underwear bomber. Like, there was that paranoia that anything could be turned against us, and you feel that with the Joker. But what I also like, being the comic book fan, is that a lot of this is taken from the comic. When the Joker first shows up, way back in, in the 30s, 40s, he just shows up, and he's just a clown that kills people and he does it with these weird meticulous plots like we see in this film like he'll poison someone and then announce that they're gonna die in 24 hours and they didn't know they were poisoned and they drop dead and they think he's foretelling like that they're gonna die and then with the different origin stories you know you talk about the scars and he tells all these different stories right out of the killing joke where he says you know if i have a past i prefer it to be multiple choice like i like all these little nods it's satisfying me as liking great stories and it's satisfying me as liking these Batman comics as well. We're never ahead of him. Every time I got a handle on what he's going to do, he's outsmarted me. He's outsmarted everyone that his plots surprise continuously and that the element of surprise is key to his appeal. At the end of the day, maybe even the reason why you love this one so much, Arnie, and didn't go for the last one and saw it as cold and unrelatable is this character is someone that we can all connect with. Joker is our end, not Batman. Joker is the character that we want to explore and that we really emotionally connect with here. Well, in a way, I'll agree with you, but actually, Joker's existence makes me connect with Bruce. And I'll explain why. In the last film, we watched Bruce do stuff. But what you just said, we're never a step ahead of the Joker. Neither is Bruce. Bruce may have a couple of tricks that we go, oh, that's what he's doing, like when he does break into Laos and we find out what the sonar is being used for, or later on when we find out what the sonar is being used for. But primarily, we are in the same boat as Bruce, discovering what happens, and we want to know. We want Bruce to find out so we can find out. We want the next piece of that puzzle given to us. So by the Joker being so malevolent and so planning, it makes me like the other characters more because I'm on the ride with them. I'm with you, Arnie. Batman 89, there's no real tension between the Joker and the Batman for me because the Joker, at the end of the day, what does he do? Oh, you wouldn't hit a guy with glasses, would you? I mean, he, he's an old dude in clown makeup and Batman punches him off a building. Here, there's some real tension. Like, I don't know if Batman can pull it off. I know, yes, this is a movie and he's probably going to win at the end of it, but they tell a story where the Joker is always a step ahead. And for Batman, that's a real problem because that's his gig is to, you know, in the comics, the victory is in the preparation. And here, what happens when someone's always a step ahead of you? How do you beat that person? And so there's some real danger there. So I'm engaged. i much more engaged with the Batman character in this film than I was in Batman Begins. I agree. It does make us ask questions about Bruce and Batman by his existence. They are doppelgangers. One sort of can't exist without the other. That's sort of the relationship as the various plots play out for the rest of the movie. It does feel copacetic. And, you know, Bruce does try to keep up. They do have a couple... Things they pull I didn't see coming that felt Joker-ish, but they're never as good as the master here. What is it do you think that Joker wants out of Batman? What is the mission here? You know, here's someone that enjoys playing people, that likes corruption, that seems to be his only sense of amusement, is to take people that have values and to show that they don't have those values. That's what he's seeking. What's the challenge of Batman? 
to make him break his one rule. Batman is seen as the best of them. He's inspiring the city. He's correcting the city. He's ridding crime, but he has the rules and everybody knows the rules and Joker exists to make things not go by the rules. What he wants, he says he doesn't know what to do when he'd catch a car, and maybe he doesn't. He says he doesn't want to kill Batman because Batman completes him, and I believe that. But what he really wants is for Batman to kill him and break that rule. When Batman's charging him with the bat body, he's like, come on, I want you, hit me, hit me, hit me. That would be Joker's final victory is Batman breaks his rule. Yeah, I believe that Joker is really suffering from an existential crisis. Like, he doesn't know why he exists. He doesn't have a plan. He doesn't want to have a moral code. He doesn't want to aspire to anything. He wants to die, but you're right. He wants to go out by making Batman do it. He's laughing when he's taken prisoner and Batman is beating him up because he thinks he's getting him closer to achieving that. He's also laughing because he knows what he set in motion. But let's kind of go through his plot here because I know he went to the mobs and said he'd do it for half the money. And the mobs, we never see the mobs go back to him and go, okay, we'll do it. Well, once he takes care of the insurgent guy, there was one guy that was like, I'm going to put a price on your head. And well, we saw how that turned out. But... He starts this war not against Batman. He says he'll kill Batman, but he's really just trying to undermine the entire good legal people in Gotham to get Batman's goat. It all happens because Lau comes back and Dent does this massive publicity stunt of rounding up every mobster on a Rico charge. 549 mobsters arrested in one day. And because of that, that judge gets blown up. And they take out the commissioner who was in the last movie. Commissioner Loeb, name of the commissioner from Batman Year One. I want to give Goyer credit where credit's due, reading those comics, putting these little things in there for me. (laughs) But this is all set up. You know, yes, he's not working for the mob. He doesn't really want their money. He does want chaos. I ask you, is his mission different than the League of Shadows? Is this the same kind of characterization as what Liam Neeson was playing in the last movie? I feel like... The major difference for me is that Raza Ghul had an ideal, that society had to live up to something, and if it didn't, he would destroy it. Whereas here, Joker wants to destroy anything. It doesn't matter how society configures itself. He wants to tear down everything. He's anarchy. Yeah, but I feel like it's working better here and it didn't work at all there because there it felt tacked on and expository. Here, we get to not hear it through words. We see it through actions. If we'd gone with Bruce and Ducard to actually purge a city, maybe that point would have been driven home. But we just have Liam Neeson spouting some dialogue. In this movie, we see the Joker's commitment to anarchy and his just genius intellect to pull it off. I think the Joker's motives are described in some of the best lines in the movie by Michael Caine as Alfred. You know, some men just want to watch the world burn. Yeah, and that entire story about, what was it, tiger hunting in Burma? Yeah, the jewel thief, and he's just giving jewels to kids. He never wanted them. He just wanted to cause problems. It's a little too on the nose. It's a rare misstep for the script to have him have this exact scenario to pull upon, but okay. He's worldly. He's a butler. I guess that makes no sense at all. All right. He is ex-military. It doesn't really come out. I don't think they ever say it, but they hint at it here. And in the comics, Alfred is ex-military. He has military training. How did he end up buttling? I'm telling you, it's called Cheney, vice president. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Who did Alfred accidentally shoot while hunting quail? <laughs> I think that's a deleted scene. <laughs> but you're right. I think you've really hit on it. This is a far superior movie to Batman Begins. I didn't think it was possible, but this feat is kind of like when they talk about Godfather, best picture, give it all the Oscars, Godfather 2. Oh my God, why did we give the awards to Godfather? This is the movie. I, it's so rare that you have an awesome movie, and I do feel like Batman Begins is still an awesome movie. And then they go and make something doubly awesome. I can't believe how great this movie is and you're right it's because what was all talk last time theoretical intellectual ideas are put into motion with all of these pranks the joker planks allow them to talk about the ideas in a way that's really thrilling and scary and exciting and make no mistake the key there is exciting things are happening that are again plot driven that invest a viewer into this movie in ways that didn't work for the last one. I almost wonder when I'd watched it on the very first time, if it might not have been a week not recommend for Batman Begins, but in the shadow of this movie, it just looks that much worse and more inept to me. And only you. (laughs) (laughs) A handful of naysayers on the internet. Well, it seems like at first what he claims he wants is to unmask Batman, that the plot is simply... Gotham is allowing themselves to be ruled by someone they don't even know, and they're trusting someone they can't see, and that they need to unmask Batman, and he's going to kill people until Batman comes forward. And if Batman is so hell-bent on not killing people, then he should turn himself right away before more people pay. And I think it is actually the Joker's plot at this point. I think the Joker, we'll go back to the jazz analogy, he goes with what feels right at the moment, and I think at the beginning what feels right is stopping Batman and making him unmask and watching the chaos of if he unmasked. But of course, he would never stop his crazy plans and his sadistic work. He is not going to stop being a bad person when Batman shows his face. He just wants to break him. Mm -hmm. And should Batman have unmasked? Obviously, I think the answer is no, because you don't give in initially. But as people start to die, it does become more gray. You can't negotiate with terrorists, or at least that was the philosophy of the time. It's still the philosophy. That was Reagan. That wasn't Bush. Yeah, I agree. That's an evergreen. That's an eternal one. But you also see, as the real-life war went on longer and more American soldiers died, people started turning against the war on terrorism. Hey, we need to pull out. We need to pull out. And that's what you see here is, cool, we got a Batman to fight crime, and he's doing everything great. Uh Uh-oh. Now, regular citizens are dying. We don't like Batman as much. We need to give in, maybe. But no regular citizens died. Not one regular citizen was killed by the Joker. It was the troops. It was the judge. It was the commissioner. It was cops and robbers. It wasn't the people. It's an interesting ethical question, no matter who the target is. And that is, how many people have to die before people turn on a war? You know, they can be supportive of Batman until people are dying. And how many people does it take before they are going to turn on their leader? I think that that is an eternal, unanswerable, but completely fascinating question about war. And living in this time of war, it was the question of the moment. When do we pull out? When do we say no more? Day one, it's just a guy hanging from a noose outside the mayor's office. Day two, it's two cops named Harvey and Dent that they find in the apartment. But then Joker really sets it up. The next one going to be the mayor. Nestor Carbonell. This movie came out right at perhaps the peak of my lost fandom. And so I knew the mayor because he was Richard Alpert, the strangely unaging man in Lost. He was one of Lost's biggest mysteries 
I was happy to see him. I love these movies where everybody is somebody. Did he have his striking eyebrows and lost as he did in The Dark Knight? This man is manicured and pedicured and all kinds of cured. This man has gorgeous eyelashes, and he swears that it's natural and not Maybelline. (laughs) Maybe he's born with it. I don't know. He's my people. He's Brazilian. (laughs) Well, you know, he looks like a politician. I totally buy him as a public figure, and I'm fascinated to see how it's going to play out here. I mean, this matters. You know, up to this point, I hate to say it, but yes, anonymous cops, very tragic. A Batman imitator, we don't want to see anyone get killed, but the mayor of the city is a symbol, and him going down would be huge. It's something that we must avert, right? The stakes have risen at Day three. Really, do we care about the mayor? He doesn't even have a name. He's the mayor. While I understand from a symbolics perspective, maybe you don't want it. From a plot perspective, it's a bad thing. Capital B, capital T. But what's worse is Commissioner Gordon dying, who takes the bullet for the mayor. Is that always the plot? That's kind of how I am guessing. Or maybe I'm giving Ledger too much credit for chaos and serendipity. But it almost seems like that's who the real target was anyway. No, I think he was going for the mayor. I mean, he... He always called out his targets. He had the DNA of the judge and of Harvey and Commissioner Loeb on the card. He had the mayor's obituary put in. Like, this dude's got so many connections. He's getting a fake obituary for the mayor printed in the paper. I think he was meant to go for the mayor. And the Joker at times maybe does seem precognitive. But do you think Gordon and Batman, did they plan to have Gordon fake his death at that moment? I take it that Gordon, Batman, and Dent were all in on it. And that's why at the end, Dent goes after those three, because they were the three who conspired to capture Joker. I think that's right. And now that we're talking through this, that makes more sense. Gordon wasn't the target, but he was going to get in front of the bullet because they were going to pull this thing. It was something that was worked out. We saw a couple scenes with Batman and the two of them hovering around the bat symbol, and then they'd cut away before we'd really learn anything. What was discussed off camera is the fact that Gordon's going to play dead, and then Dent is going to take the fall for Batman. He's going to be the one to claim I'm Batman, and then the real Batman. Oh, no, no, no. I don't think so, because... I don't think that that was the case, because Bruce wouldn't burn his personal files if it was planned that Dent takes the fall. It was planned at that point that Bruce was going to come out. And Dent does that without telling Batman. I think Bruce and Gordon were in on it, because I don't think Dent knows about Gordon. He acts surprised when he shows up. No, he says, I told you I could play it close to the vest. Those are the first words when Gordon shows up. Mm. The person who I wondered if he was in on it was Dent, but... He says, I told you I could play it close to the vest. And at the end, he's like, why am I the one punished when we did this thing together? I think it becomes more evident, although it's not entirely clear, but I believe it's stated in the movie. And again, I caught a little more each time, but it's in there that it was the three of them conspiring for the fake death of Gordon. But Batman didn't know Dent was going to say, I'm Batman. Oh, interesting. I see your point. Why would he burn the files? I just thought he was ready. He was a man that wanted to burn the files. He wanted to get rid of this identity. He was exhausted. He was tired of being hurt. He was tired of being chased. He couldn't take it anymore. And he wanted to be with Rachel. So I see what you mean. Because they do play the scene like he's just about to go in front of the cameras and admit it. And then when Dent says it, he does look surprised. But later in the movie, with all the twists and turns, I thought maybe this was all a ruse and that this was their plan. 
No, I think that it's the way it is to get the three of them together, and yeah, he said it. He trusted Batman to do the right thing, which was save his ass, because they were all in on this a little bit together, but not that last step. Batman was going to step out in order to stop the Jokers from killing more people. Okay, so Rachel is mad at Bruce about the fact that he doesn't turn himself in, that he allows her lover to turn himself in and claim a false identity as Batman. Bruce, he was ready to do it. He was going to do it. The reason why he didn't do it, I'm presuming, is that he recognizes that Dent is now a target. He's definitely going to be the next person that Joker kills and that Bruce can do more good as Batman if he follows the police processional. They haul Dent away in handcuffs and he's being run through the lower part of the city. Batman is in the wings with his prowler, he's going to do more good in this way than if he had been the one inside the car with the handcuffs. I thought he went there to announce that he is Batman. I really did. That's my reading of it. And when Dent said that he's Batman, I kind of got the feeling Bruce just stepped back to see what Dent was playing and to not go in, wait, no, he's not Batman. I'm Batman and create that kind of silliness. He was stepping back Because he trusts Dent. Dent is one of the, what, five people in all of Gotham, six maybe if you count Rachel, that he trusts, including himself. He is the heir apparent to the Batman legacy. He's never going to be the real Cape Crusader, but he is going to be the person to do more good as the face of Gotham. He is the son of Batman. And so, yeah, I agree. They're all in on this together. What they know in the moment, it's kind of hard to know the movie cuts and moves so quickly. I hear what you guys are saying, but I definitely feel like he, at this point, recognizes that Dent's next. That, yes, he gets the message that Rachel is next, but he's not her bodyguard. He's following Dent as Batman. And that leads to what I swear to God would be the climax of any other superhero film. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? This is enough. I mean, really, if they had stopped the movie after the semi-overturning, we would all have been satisfied and wiped the sweat from our brow. It's so freaking exciting. And the last movie, none of the action had me going, even the stuff in the Chicago. But here, this is what I think of now every time I'm by Navy Pier. This is so it. And just this entire thing is so kinetic, and it just goes and goes and goes, but it's so rhythmic and well-paced and amazing, and total frickin' kudos, because one of the few things and the few bonus features I learned is the reason this is so exciting is because it feels real. Because it is real. They flipped a freaking semi. This film used very little CGI from my understanding, you know, except for maybe Two-Face. Billings are added to the skyline. I do feel like there are tweaks, but yeah, everything at least is partially a real thing. Anything they could do on camera, they did on camera, and you feel it. Yes. We didn't necessarily like the Transformers movie, Stuart, but we could at least credit some of the effects and credit some of the action, but you can Compare Optimus Prime rolling to this semi-rolling, and it's apples and oranges. There's no denying. Indeed, the third Transformers movie shot in some of the exact same locations as these fights are happening here, and I dare say they never touch what Nolan is able to do. And you're right, it's tactile, it's real, it's the theme of this movie. We are going to make you believe that this is really happening and that it has 
of physicality. And I do. I completely do. I am overwhelmed. And, you know, normally I got to say, I'm not really into all the trinkets and toys. Sometimes they feel like novelty of like, oh, we got to give him something new. But I was so overjoyed when the tumbler <laughs> seems to be down and he just hits the button and out comes this little motorcycle thing. What the hell is this? The Bat Pod. This came out that there was going to be this Bat Pod. You know, besides Heath Ledger that I rolled my eyes at, I'm like, really a Bat Pod? How lame. And then I saw it and I saw the chases and what it does to the semi. I'm like, holy crap, this is awesome. It is tremendous. This film has made me put full faith in Nolan. Like, he could cast whoever he wants. You know, he's casting a, a Disney princess, you know, was in the Princess Diaries and in, in Dark Knight Rises. I don't care. I'm trusting you on that. You you pulled off a bat pod. Yeah. And the third rock from the yes. sun, kid. <laughs> it's the only thing that makes me feel good about those stills of her on some kind of bat pod that I've seen from the new movie. I'm like, ooh, that doesn't look good. But you know what? If she ends up going up the wall and it flipping over like this thing does, I don't care. I love it. Yeah, this is so great, and I thought this was a director who couldn't do action after the last movie. No, here he does it, and I think he's aided by putting his trust in a lot of other people and bringing his cinematic skill to it, but every note here is right. But I'm going to tell you, after this scene, when they capture Joker, I say this, and I mean it, this is where most movies could end, and I would have been satisfied if this movie ended, because at this point, I mean, we're only 90 minutes in, and it's two and a half hours long, but so much has happened. After this ends, I'm exhausted. And I remember every time thinking, oh my god, how much more of this am I supposed to take? But like a great song, when it reaches that crescendo and it starts to go on too long, it suddenly does a key change and comes back with even more energy and gets even better. I agree. The second half of the movie is better than the first. Somehow. You talk about ratcheting up the tension and, and the danger and everything. It just goes up. We've seen the Joker shooting a bazooka from a semi that says slaughter is the best medicine. And he feels <laughs> more dangerous when he's locked in the cell. Yeah. Totally. You get the feeling from him that at any moment he wanted to, he'd walk out. This is something he's manipulated. This is what he wanted. He wanted to be caught. I, I agree with you. He's playing jazz. He would have been fine if Batman shot him dead in the street. He didn't. He's put in cuffs. He's hauled away. He knows that he's going to be taken. He's always got an ace up his sleeve. If he, I do live, I know they're going to take me to Gordon's secret headquarters and I'll be able to get Lau. That's what he's working on. In all of these scenes, it is a domino effect, but the whole point of it is he knows at the end of the day, he's going to walk out of there with Lau. I do love when they arrest him and they're pulling all these knives out. There's a vegetable peeler. Like, that just, like, <laughs> cements the idea of the Joker. Like, this isn't a guy with just, like, 50 knives on him. He also has a vegetable peeler. How sadistic is that? <laughs> you never know when you're going to want a carrot. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's what it's for. I didn't even realize the point was to get Lau. Honestly, that completely escaped me because he cares so little about the mobsters. But I guess it is after this that they do give him the money, is after Lau is gone and the person who could turn them in is gone. I took this all as a complete diversionary tactic while his men grab Rachel and Dent. It's day four. He's killed someone every day, or at least he thought he did yesterday. He thought he killed Gordon. But it's day four. He's going to make good on his word. He always makes good on his word. Someone's got to die. Two people are going to die. He's had Dent and Rachel taken prisoner. And this one, it shocked me. I mean, literally, I would have never guessed 
that a superhero movie marketed to mass audiences would do something as wicked and sadistic and cruel as what is done here in the switcheroo. I completely agree. I mean, how many times have we seen it? Make your choice. You can save only one. Oops, I saved both. I expected him to save both. They wouldn't kill either because Harvey Dent, well, he's going to someday be Two-Face. I wasn't even sure going in that it was going to be in this movie. But someday he was going to be Two-Face and Rachel, well, you don't kill Rachel. That's just not what you do in this movie. When she died, my jaw was on the floor. I think everyone's was. I remember throughout this whole film when I saw it in the theater, opening weekend, packed theater, I mean, dead silent. And especially here, like, this does not happen in superhero movies. The damsel does not die. They always threaten it, though. You know, Vicki Vale was going to get this. Gwen Stacy is going to get this. They do try and always say, we're going to do that. We might do that. They want to walk the walk, but this movie talks the talk. And very briefly, I wished it was still Katie Holmes. (laughs) (laughs) And... Dent doesn't escape unscathed, but I gotta ask you guys, this is my question. Joker gives two addresses where these two are. Batman has to choose one. Gordon's gonna go after the other. Joker flips the addresses. Yeah. Why? Because he knows who Batman's going to go after. He knows he's got it for Rachel. That's right. There was a scene earlier in the Wayne fundraiser where he threw Rachel out the window and Batman responded so quickly that he knew Batman had a thing for her. And so he decided, wouldn't it be funny? I thought you cared about Dent, but oh, if you like this one, I'm going to tell you this is where she's at. And nope, you have to save Dent. Ha 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 I love the subtlety of it because the fact that he does go and saves Dent. And it's never mentioned again that he flipped the addresses. It's never discussed in the film. It's just Batman says he's going to go save Rachel. And then there he is with Dent. And maybe it is just the sadism of, well, you obviously have a thing for Rachel. Let's have you save her lover instead and watch her die. But... If Joker is all about the human condition and knowing what the next move is, I would almost think that this kind of a lie is antithetical to his methods. But then again, his methods are whatever. And it sets up his final plot that we'll get to in a little bit about switching what he tells people is going on. As you guys said already, I feel like he wants to break Batman. And if Batman loses Rachel, the likelihood that Batman is going to kill him is higher. There's vengeance. There's all of that stuff that Bruce Wayne was trying to work out with his parents' murder. It's going to come back now. It's going to be on his shoulder, a devil prodding him. Well, now you want to put that bullet. You want to do that. You want to kill now. He's really testing him. It's bringing us back to that original movie and that choice that he walked away from. I mean, you really get it in the interrogation scene, which I love. It's dark. Commissioner Gordon walks out and turns on the lights and Batman's standing there and starts torturing him, throwing him up against the table and the glass. And the Joker calls it out. Their morals, their code is a joke. When the chips are down, these civilized people will turn on each other. And Batman says, I have one rule. And he says, then that's the rule you'll have to break. I mean, he wants him to break that rule. He wants civilization to crumble and to break the one rule or this facade that there's order. And escalating it, killing this woman he loves, is a good way to try to get him to break that rule. And he wants to get out. I pointed out the whole goal, really, of all of this is to get out with Lau. He was going to kill someone anyway. That's what his promise is. That's something he just does every day. That's not a goal. That's just a habit. 
But here, <laughs> the point is, he's got this really nifty trip while all of this is going on, and we're trying to process all of this bouncing back and forth. He's working on getting a phone so he can trigger one of his goons in a separate cage to explode because he's cut him open and sewn a bomb in him that's triggered by cell phone. Awesome. I'm telling you, this whole sequence is just one of the most kinetic, exciting exchanges I've ever seen. I dare say I feel like it has the kind of elation that I have when watching Hannibal Lecter break out of his cell. It just has that oomph. It's just tremendous. But for all his prognostication abilities, the Joker couldn't foresee what would happen to Dent. No. I agree with that. No, but he's also a jazz player. He's going to go with it. He's going to figure out what to do next based on that. I agree. I agree completely with that, but it's a happy accident. Yes. It's not intent. But going back to our books and nachos, Jacob, watching this movie this time, and again, I've seen it so often, but now I'm seeing it totally different. I'm seeing the killing joke and Harvey Dent's having one hell of a bad day. Oh, yeah, this is so killing joke to me. I mean, it's on a grand scale. By the end of it, he's doing it with all of Gotham. But in a way, yeah, Harvey Dent, he's not as strong as Gordon. He loses here. And again, going back to this metaphor about the war and the politics at the time, you go on long enough, and they call it on this film, you know, you, you live long enough, you become the villain. You stop being the hero, and we need to see that with a character. We need to see that play out. I take that a totally different way. You don't become the villain by turning evil like Dent. You become the villain because people's perceptions change. Batman is the one who lives long enough to become the villain. He's the Caesar here. Well, they both do. Oh, no, I think it's Dent. He's always trying to bring about justice, but by the end, he's killing corrupt cops and uh, mobsters. That's not justice. It's not the law. Look at his signature move. He always made judgments based on a coin flip, but we found out in the middle of the movie, it's always heads. It's always an idle threat. He's never really going to do it. It's always just a way of intimidating people. After the fire, half of that coin is burned, and that means something different. When he does the coin flips again, there are life and death stakes involved. We don't know what he's going to do until the coin lands, and I think that that's an exciting way to visualize the change and the corruption of the character. I think it applies to both of them. Batman lives long enough to be a monster at the end, but Dent is a project as well that mirrors that. So it's day five, Joker's still at it. He's still going to kill somebody. He doesn't give up. I love that. And this time, he is making it interesting that the target is Reese. Now, Reese, we haven't talked about him. He's the accountant I mentioned earlier, who's a consultant for Wayne Enterprises and answers a long-standing question I've had. I'm glad Dukar last film was like, hey, those things we taught Bruce are in Gotham City now. Well, here's somebody who's like, Hey, there's that Tumblr that we see as the Batmobile in Wayne Enterprises. He wants to blackmail Wayne Enterprises for $10 million a year to keep the identity secret. And to stop the Joker, he's going to go on Anthony Michael Hall's talk show. Yes. It starts out as a personal thing, that he thinks he can get a lot of money by extorting Bruce Wayne. And it ends up just being a real fun scene for Morgan Freeman because he laughs it off in such a great way. But yes... If you know who Batman is, and every day someone dies until Batman shows his face, don't you have a moral obligation to speak up, even if you're turning in the good guy? I feel like this is a really interesting moral quandary, and I can't blame him. Really? 
Really? Because I took it totally different. I didn't take it as this was the moral choice. I took it that he was pissing himself. He was so scared of what would happen next. I didn't think he was doing it for anyone but his own self-interest. This character, a very, very minor character with maybe ten lines, all ten lines are self-interest. I took it as him saving his own ass. No, no, only in the beginning. He is doing this now. I think he says that to Anthony Michael Hall, which, by the way, WTF? But he goes on the news, <laughs> and it really is about he can't not speak out anymore. It is now impelled by morality to save lives. He was going to profit on it, but now people are dying. And until Batman is known, they will continue to die. So this is his character. He is showing a different side of himself. And I love that about this script. So many of the characters are able to work within moral ambiguity. They have moments where they are heroes and villains. And this is his turning point. You see, I took it differently. What you say when you're on Montel Williams is totally different than reality. Are you going to go on Montel and go, yeah, I would like my five minutes of fame and I'm scared that I'm going to be next? No. I just figured maybe he could get a book deal out of it. Exactly. I thought total self-interest. Not total. I'll go with you. The fact that it's got to be at the 5 o'clock news, maybe that does show a little bit of greed. But I see something else here, too. I mean, people are dying until Batman is known. He knows who Batman is. He's there to get it out there. But Joker twists it, as he tends to do, and he's the victim that's going to die on day 5. And (laughs) they got an hour. This one's a surprise, but they got an hour to shoot Reese or a hospital of unknown origin somewhere within Gotham one of the hospitals is rigged to blow up. Now, what I love is you, we've both mentioned Anthony Michael Hall there. He's actually following this guy. Talk about self-interest. He's going to cover every attempted murder on him live on the air. And Anthony Michael Hall at this point in his career, I was watching him on USA starring in The Dead Zone. He was a TV star at this point. The only reason I can even think why he might take this role is there's about an hour of bonus features on the Blu-ray of him interviewing other characters completely in character. I think he was hired for supplemental material stuff and basically cameoing in this film. You know, I have a theory about Nolan. I don't know if it's true or not, but I feel like Nolan is a child of the 80s, grew up watching these influential figures and is now specifically going and casting them in his movies even when it doesn't make sense you know anthony michael hall here makes no more sense than having rutger hauer in the last movie or tom berenger in inception he just likes them they were in iconic movies he wants to utilize them he is by bringing them in bringing a part of the mystique of the movies they were involved with that he loved with them. I think it's cool that Anthony Michael Hall is here. It just totally threw me for a loop. That helps explain Eric Roberts, at least. Yes, it sure does. (laughs) He was great in Star 80, and then there's been the last 30 years. (laughs) And again, we have more great action, but who gives a crap? Because what I'm all into is what's going on with Joker and Two-Face. I'll tell you what, if I thought Scarecrow was inappropriate for children, when we finally get to see the other side, that's horrifying. That is R-rated violence. How did this make it into a PG-13 movie? Who did they pay off in the MPAA to get this in here? Hey, there was no nipples. It's fine. (laughs) You have a guy with a melted face talking to a tranny psychotic clown. I know you're in heaven, Jacob. I am too. (laughs) Oh, yes. This may be my favorite scene. It's There's too many favorite scenes to name here, but it's 
top five. I think that their interplay, we wanted to see this project. We wanted to see the creation of Two-Face. We want to see how he plays into this. I'm still not convinced seeing the scenes of him bemoaning in a hospital bed. I'm like, well, he's not a villain yet. But once Joker shows up here, boy, it really does come into clarity. It does. And let me say, this movie came out right around Comic-Con in 2008. It was just almost that same weekend, days after this movie was released. There were people at Comic-Con walking around in that Joker nurse outfit, and it's still a perennial favorite. (laughs) I don't know if this is one of those ideas where Heath Ledger comes up with it or Nolan wrote it this way. Like, it's such a crazy idea, like, for... All the stuff going on in this film, and then we're going to have the Joker and drag. And give this super serious speech to Harvey Dent and turn him into Two-Face. It's crazy. That's exactly it, though. I think they never want to get so far, even though this is a big, serious moment. They never want you to forget that this is a clown. This is someone that doesn't take anything seriously. He admits as much that at the end of the day... Agent of Chaos. Any of my plans don't really amount to anything. I get it. You know, you got to have both in the scene. You got to have threat and scary, and you got to have buffoonery and dark humor. And they've really achieved something. You mentioned having many favorite moments. I think mine comes after the scene. It's when Joker's blowing up the hospital, and he's doing that standard I'm walking away, it's exploding behind me thing. But then he stops and looks back because it didn't blow up right. And he's like (laughs) shaking the thing and beating it. And then the real explosion comes. He's like, oh, shit, I got to get further away. And he runs away. (laughs) I love that little moment. And I didn't even notice how that played the first time. I think I was still in shock from Rachel, honestly. (laughs) Or maybe Harvey Dent's face. I was not in the right mind to appreciate that the detonator didn't quite work. And we see the explosion. And you think, no, that's a movie explosion. Windows break. And then when it really explodes it like is a demolition and collapses upon itself again like the twin towers of 9-11 real explosion too from what i understand wow not a cgi one they really blew up a old hospital for this wow that's incredible and it just is such an amazing scene right there because this scene is a microcosm for the movie itself it gives you what you think you want and then it shows you how much better what you even wanted could be indeed And because the hospital has blown up, that means that Reese is no longer the target. People can stop trying to assassinate him because it won't make any difference. But there's still somebody that's got to die on day five. So he moves to the next plan. Really, the final one. The final social experiment. This one... I gotta say, it doesn't click as well as the rest. For all Joker's plans, this boat thing falls a little flat on me. Why is that? Why is the final plan always not quite as good as some of the things that happen in the middle? I feel like I see that time and time again, that they can never get the very best scene at the end. I can't think of when that's ever happened, but you're right here. I like the boat thing. I mean, I think it works. Maybe it's just exhaustion, or maybe it's just that we've repeated this so many times. But I think what it really is, is that do we buy that nobody would push the button? Obviously, Batman is betting on that, that people are good. And I do believe people are good, but I don't know that everybody's good. You know, I don't know that I buy that every hardened prisoner on that boat and every workaday family man and woman that's trying to get home is going to make that same choice. What I like about this, again, is the moral dilemma. Like, It's a boat full of criminals. Why shouldn't we just execute them to save ourselves? And then you have this, like, microcosm of democracy where they vote to kill them, but then they can't do anything. Is democracy always the best thing? We're voting to blow up a boat full of people. It's a much more cerebral 
climax than the thrill of the car chase that we saw earlier. But I'm on the edge of my seat when I'm watching this, especially the first time. To me, this just feels like almost a monkey's paw type story. And I think the reason it falls flat for me is because a boat full of people I don't know is less important than one person I do. And we spent this whole movie and we got to know a lot of people. And now we're being introduced to literally two boatloads more. And I just don't care about them. Them in danger after what happened to Rachel is a letdown. And while I can appreciate the question of is a boat of convicts and a boat of people all moral enough to not kill each other, even though knowing making the moral high ground is to end your own life... It's just not very satisfying because it's too far removed from the characters and the story we've been following. The Joker is watching this from a building far away, and so are we. And so the more time we spend on the boat, the less I care. And especially when the convict's like, give it to me and I'll do what should have been done, and throws it out a window, it felt a little trite. Well, that's what I mean. I don't know that I buy that everyone on that boat would make the quote-unquote right decision. I like the setup of it. It's an intellectual one. It's kind of getting back to the climax of the original movie. You know, the one that you guys didn't like. But yes, it's intellectualized. The what happens if all these people are in danger? Will they allow their fear to destroy each other? Will they allow the way that they perceive each difference in class You're just a poor person. You're just a thief. You're just a yuppie. Nobody cares about you. Will they allow these differences to destroy their identity? I mean, I like it intellectually. I think it played better in the climax of the last movie than it does here. It is very intellectual. It's based on economic game theory, and I guess a lot of people don't enjoy reading about economic game theory, uh, about these kind of decisions and self-interest and that. You know, Arnie, say you don't buy the all these prisoners wouldn't do it. Well, it comes down to the choice of one prisoner. One guy steps up and he makes the choice. It's not all the prisoners. I'm going with it. This is a movie about trying to inspire us to be something better than we are. This is a film where you see everyone compromise their morals. I mean, and this is what I'm saying. When this is the film about post-9-11 and what we're going through with the war and politics and we're waterboarding and we're torturing and we have secret camps and we're seeing our prisoners die and... It's not black and white. Everyone compromises in this film. Alfred, he has this letter from Rachel that he burns, saying that she would never marry Bruce, and he he burns that. He he lies to Bruce that he'll never be able to see it. We see Lucius Fox. He uses this huge surveillance system, which he says he's going to resign over, you know, tapping into everyone's phones. We're seeing everyone compromise here. And I think that was how we felt as an American people. We didn't know who we were anymore. We'd been gotten into this war with this enemy that's not a country. We can't just bomb it. It's their terrorist cells all over the place. They take our everyday objects like airplanes and turn them into weapons. And how are we supposed to do this? Do we just go on dying? Do we get too extreme? And metaphorically, this is the ending we need. This is what we need to rise up. So I'm willing to go with it. I agree with you, Jacob. I love that. I saw that ending in the last movie as well. But I feel like for this one, I really just think the problem for me is we don't see one character that's willing to hit the button. We know that they must exist. Not everyone is Batman. Other people would have made that choice. There would have been some kind of fight for it. But this movie's fantastic. I'm not going to belabor the point. Right. I'm not saying it's not good. It just, compared to everything that's come before, is a little bit of a letdown. But I do like the action. Again, a great action piece with Batman in that in-construction building where Joker... This was the switcheroo I was referring to earlier. 
the captives are in the clown masks and the goons are all dressed like doctors and the SWAT team is there to kill all the people in clown masks. And so Batman has to fight the SWAT team. This is almost too much for me. Almost at this point, I can't handle any more of this movie. I feel like it's pushed so many buttons that at this point, it's overwhelming. I don't know that I want the movie to be over. I don't think I ever want it to be over. But this is one extra chase that I don't feel like I needed. I guess we did need it because this is the last time we're going to see the Joker. And that's really sad when you realize that because it's not set up that way. But this is the last time we're going to see Heath Ledger's Joker. And so it needs to means something. But it also calls back, going way back to the hospital blowing up, they say there's one bus missing and they can't find Dent. Well, this is what happened with all the people in that bus. They turned him into hostages and dressed him up as clown. Like, that's what I like is that you might think it's extra stuff, but it's actually tied in there. Like, it's answering things that were set up earlier. Yeah, I didn't catch that. I didn't pick up on that. Yeah. Okay, cool. It takes a few watchings to to connect all these things together. This is a dense film. Sure is. It is. And I do get more out of it every time I watch it. Question for you guys. Did I dream this up? Or is there any point in the movie where we find out that if they had hit the detonator, it was rigged to blow up their own ferry and not the other one? I thought I picked that up, but maybe I just dreamed that as what Joker would do. I've wondered that because that seems like a very Joker thing to do. I don't think it's called out in the film, though. It's what he did with Rachel and Dent, and I just feel like that would be his ultimate punishment. It's like, okay, you made the choice to protect yourself. You're dead. But I I agree. I didn't hear it, but I thought I did. No, I, I didn't see that in the movie. Now, you did mention this is the last time we see the Joker. I can't find anything about it, but come on. Am I the only one who feels like in an original script... Joker died through some means, but when Heath Ledger died, they're like, we will never show this footage. It's like Brandon Lee with the crow. And so now the Joker's ending is left ambiguous because it doesn't feel even as satisfying as what happened to Scarecrow last movie. This feels like a scene is missing in the film. No, he cannot kill Joker in this film. He has his one rule. That's a major point. The Joker wants him to kill him. You said yourself, everyone compromises. But I would agree with you because Batman does shoot the Batarang and yank him back up. But what about the SWAT team who comes in? Couldn't one of them have cut him and killed him? It loses its power, I think. I mean, this whole thing is set up. What do you do with this enemy that you got to take a moral standing against, but you don't want to just blow them with atom bombs. I mean, there's a lot of people that think we should just drop atom bombs on the Mideast and be done with it. And you can't do that. That's obviously not the right thing to do, but you can't let them go on with these terrorist cells killing. You. So I think this is the right way to take it, not have the SWAT come in and put a bullet between the eyes. I'm not asking who should have killed him, but I'm asking, does it feel like there's a scene missing? Here's what I will say to this. The way that this movie is set up, not in any other Batman movie I've seen, and the way that this movie's set up, Joker cannot die unless he dies by Batman's hands. And that they've got to make the choice of whether Batman's compromise will involve him breaking his last rule. I could see the movie's cynicism allowing that to happen. I could see that as an alternate ending that they wrote, possibly. And I do feel that the way that they cut away, it's not like you want to see if this is the last shot of Joker, you want it to really burn into your retina. And him just kind of hanging upside down and laughing isn't quite that moment. I feel like, yeah. 
They probably could have done that. They maybe even filmed that. Do we want that? No. At the end of the day, this is very much like what they did with Scarecrow. This character lives on to be a nuisance in future movies. He gets put in the Arkham Asylum, and he can come back and bring his chaos when the storyline requires it. I believe that he could have been the villain in Part 3, and that there may not be any Bane or... Well, there probably would have been a Catwoman, but I don't necessarily think that this should have been a death for Joker. I know what was said at the time, and I take everything that's said, especially when somebody's dead, everybody tries to be respectful and things. What was said at the time is that there were talks, if there was a three, that Heath would return, and when Heath died, they're like, well, we're not going to have anyone replace Heath. And for obvious reasons, that's the right choice. So... Whether or not that was entirely the intent from the beginning, I can't imagine he'd be the villain again, because if anything, I would think Nolan's proven he's not going to repeat himself. I don't know. I don't feel like the novelty is worn off for me, and if Joker teamed up with Raza Gould and it's Liam and Heath, I would have loved it. If they brought the trilogy to conclusion by bringing back both villains, I could have really gone with it. I don't know how Catwoman and Bane are going to play into this world. I do feel like they got their work cut out for them because what was done here with Neeson and particularly with Ledger is epic. And I just don't know how it could escalate further. Getting rid of Joker is necessary. We end the story here. But the true climax of this film now is dense. It's almost like Joker's mantle has been passed. Joker wins. Joker wants to prove that he can break the incorruptible. He didn't do it with Batman, but he did do it with Dent. And we said so much with Batman Begins that Gotham is a character. And in this film, Gotham is embodied in Dent. He's the face of Gotham. The two faces of Gotham. Well, mm, yeah, literally. But we need the conclusion. I think that's the real point of the film is what's going to happen with Gotham. So it seems weird when it doesn't end with Joker, but... It also makes sense. There's an integrity to this film that this is a film about Gotham and the face of Gotham, and we need to come to that conclusion, not just end with the cool villain. A testament to how much they had convinced me of their message. I did not know whether Two-Face was going to put the bullet in Gordon's kid. I would say in any other superhero movie, if the climax of your movie is the bad guy's got a child at gunpoint, duh, Batman's going to save that child. That's a given. In this movie, in this moment, when the three are reunited and debating about their fall from grace, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't either. I can't imagine they're going to kill a kid, but I couldn't imagine they'd give that face to somebody in a PG-13 movie. Couldn't imagine they would have killed Rachel. I mean, they've already proven they'll do it. They could do it if that's the way the story needs to conclude, but it is something else. And isn't it wonderful in a superhero movie to not know what's going to happen next? Indeed. But what happens next is a whole lot of preaching and talking, and finally Batman throws him off a roof. It's tense. I don't mean to downplay it, but again, just not living up to what's come before, because Dent, while a fallen angel, the fallen white knight, just isn't Joker to me. Eckhart's good, but... Ledger's great. I think he's not a villain in the traditional sense. We don't feel like he was going to walk away from this moment and go terrorize more people. Our lives are not at stake by what's going on in Dent's head. It really is more about, yeah, just corrupting the incorruptible. This is Joker's handiwork. We're watching Joker here through his, you know, it's an art project. Dare I say, they've gone back to Burton, maybe, for a little inspiration. It's performance art. But what a dark ending that... 
Batman has to take the fall. So question for you guys, and this is something I've thought ever since I first saw the film, and I, I guess maybe we'll see it play out next week, or maybe we won't. Do you think there's a possibility Harvey didn't die, he's just knocked unconscious, and that they cover up his death? They do a Gordon on him? Yeah, that's my theory, because so much of this is about how you have to lie sometimes to make a better world, and that the truth always doesn't make a better world. I just have this feeling that maybe they faked the death of Harvey Dent here, that he didn't really die. Nothing shocks me. Nothing is off the table. I believe that's certainly a possibility for next week. I think any character we've seen, short of Heath Ledger, could be in the movie that I'm going to watch this Friday. I would agree. I would be happy to see him return. But by the same token, in this movie, when I saw it in theaters, I took him as just knocked out. It didn't seem like that kind of a fall would kill you. Batman and Rachel took a much worse fall earlier in the film that both walked away from. But watching it this time... I take it as he was killed. And is that Batman breaking his final rule? Did he, by stopping Harvey from shooting Gordon in the way he did, if it did kill him, is that Batman's compromise that was needed to beat the Joker's final victory? Or did he just not save Dent from falling? <laughs> no, he pushed him. <laughs> well, he went over with him. He went to grab Gordon Jr., James's son. And save him, and, you know, well, Two-Face was holding him, so he went over, too. Yeah, it's one of those ambiguous endings. It could mean any of the things that we are implying here. It could mean that, yeah, Batman broke his rule. It could mean that he did what the, the right thing was to do to save the kid. I don't know. I do know that it's interesting, and I don't think I've ever seen a superhero movie end by changing the hero into the villain. This was a shocker. I didn't know how this movie was going to end. I did not anticipate that the dogs would return and that we would see Batman as vigilante. Is this a story arc that was carried over to the comics? I know Batman was always someone that the cops wanted to capture or know about, but the whole city of Gotham? It's not something that's currently going on. I mean, there might have been stories in the past where he was framed for something and the city turned on him, but no big ones that are coming to mind. Okay. Remember in our Batman and Robin podcast, I wished for a series of novels set in that movie universe? <laughs> and you both <laughs> laughed at me? Well, yes. there is a series of novels set in this Dark Knight universe. Now, they all did come out before this movie, but some are set after this movie. I am... Don't have time to read them for books and nachos right now. Comic-Con happened, celebration's coming. But I don't believe Batman is being hunted in this way in those books. So I think that was a miscommunication to marketing people and that it's going to be carried into the next film and no further. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm just as on pins and needles, maybe even more so, about where it's going to go next. I was so excited. It's a different emotion. I was so excited to see Batman going into battle after the end of the first movie. This time, I'm fearful. I'm fearful because I know what Bane's reputation is. I know that this series has been incredibly dark and could go darker. And yes, the idea that Batman Rising could mean the fall of Bruce Wayne. I just don't know. I hope for the best for these characters because I really like them, but I fear for the worst. But it also could be monkey work. You never know with Bane. <laughs> we might literally not know because we won't be able to understand them, but it looks like they fixed that. <laughs> I'm going into the next one reserved. 
the trailers are intentionally vague. I know so little about it. I'm excited because of how I feel about The Dark Knight, but having just rewatched Batman Begins and having these conversations and thinking about Insomnia and The Prestige, I'm going to be cautiously optimistic. You know, for me, Artie, you had Avengers and Amazing Spider-Man. I'm not sure which one you were more hyped up for. Avengers. Stuart, you had Prometheus this summer. For me, this is the one I'm most hyped up for. The Dark Knight Rises, full faith in Nolan. He's proved to me that he could take stupid ideas like a bat pod and the dude from 10 Things I Hate About You and make them amazing. You want Catwoman and Bane and a flying Batmobile? Go for it. Well... It's a formality, but let's do it. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend The Dark Knight? Uh, yeah. I mean, look, this for me, people say an Avengers is the best superhero movie ever. No, you're wrong. Sorry. Start over. <laughs> it's The Dark Knight. This is not just a great superhero film. This is just a great film, period. It transcends the genre. It hits the themes and the topics. I've already said everything I need to. This is the film when my kids want to say, Daddy, what is it like with the terrorist? And... 2008, here, watch this movie. That's what the political climate was like. That was the discussion and the debate going on. There you go. You don't get that out of Spider-Man or the Avengers or even Superman. This is a film that goes above all that. It it, it transcends what X-Men did with the kind of dialogue those films had about ethics and, and those kind of things. This film does it all. Batman Begins was good. This one's way better. It it somehow improved on all those great things and made an amazing film. Yeah, recommended. Stuart. Yeah, it it totally transforms the genre. I mean, take it from someone that doesn't like superhero movies. This is a must-see for everyone. People used to laugh at mob movies, and then The Godfather came along. You know, things can be ghettoized, and then something comes along, and everyone goes, Oh, I get it. And The Dark Knight is that movie. This movie should have won the Oscar for Best Picture. I can't think of a better movie that came out in 2008. And I I dare say I can't think of many movies better than it in the whole entire decade. This is one of the strongest recommends I could give any movie. It's up there with Poltergeist, Alien, all of my favorites. I think this is a tremendous achievement. Nolan's finest work. He may not be able to top it next week. He may never top it. But it doesn't matter. This is fantastic cinema at its best. And for me, it's obviously a recommend. I feel I should go back to what I said in my first Dark Knight review way back when. What I said that summer was this was a strong superhero summer because there was Iron Man, which really just captured my imagination and renewed a love in superhero films. And then there's The Dark Knight, which was so amazing, but so serious. The thing I said back then is you're going to have Dark Knight people and you're going to have Iron Man people. And I love, love, love Dark Knight, but it's right there with some movies that I love, like Requiem for a Dream, that are so hard to watch at times. They're so nihilistic and so cruel to the characters. You get to like the characters and then you get to see them just beat to shit that I stand by what I said back then. I don't want to retract it. I think Iron Man is a more fun time at the movies. And if I have to pick one, I have a better time watching Iron Man because it's a feel-good movie. This is not a feel-good movie, but it's an astounding movie. 
It's so well made, so well constructed, so well plotted, so well written. Everything about it clicks, and it is phenomenal. And yes, I will put it up there on that mantle with X-Men First Class, Spider-Man 2, Kick-Ass, and Avengers. I don't choose the best, because my the best will change by the day. But it is certainly one of the best movies in the superhero genre. One of the best movies we've reviewed for now playing. Absolutely. And as a fan, I will always pick provocation over comfort. For me, this is just my style of movie. I think you're right. It's going to appeal to people's sensibilities differently. And this is the way I want superhero movies to work. I love Iron Man. Uh, By saying I'm a Dark Knight person does not mean I'm negating the entertainment and, and the greatness of that movie. But if there can only be one, this would be the one for me. But maybe there's room for more. Who knows? Is it possible? Could it possibly be that he's going to save the best for last? No. <laughs> just, just <laughs> listen. I've learned the hard way. High expectations equals disappointment. Don't have high expectations. I have a word for that. It's called Prometheus. Well, will the Dark Knight Rises match the Dark Knight in our viewers' eyes? Will former villains make cameo appearances that have been kept secret from even the internet? And will Jacob's heart just give out in the theater from anticipation? Find out next week. Same bat day, same bat website. We've received a letter from Batman this morning. Please inform the citizens of Gotham that Gotham City has earned the rest from crime. But if the forces of evil should rise again to cast a shadow on the heart of the city, call me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing Batman Movie Retrospective Series. Well, that was very brief. Just like all the men in my life. Part of our DC Comics movie series. Fortune smiles, another day of wine and roses. Or in your case, beer and pizza. <laughs> Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Batman movie, culminating in a weekend of release review of Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. My business, repeat customers. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, check out our archives where you can find reviews of other comic-based movies, such as Green Lantern, The Avengers, X-Men, Howard the Duck, and many more. If you gotta go, go with a smile. (laughs) You can also listen to our non-comic-based movie reviews, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Tron, and many others. Now that's impressive! You can set your bat phone to subscribe and get every new Now Playing Podcast. RSS subscription details are at nowplayingpodcast.com. What is it you really came here for? While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Don't talk like one of them. You're not. Even if you'd like to be. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Come on, you gruesome son of a bitch. Come to me. (laughs) The link to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Oh, you made it. I'm so thrilled. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. So what are we waiting for? 
Let's consummate our fiendish union. You can find the link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. It's not about what I want. It's about what's fair! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can't get capes and cowls, yet you can buy panties, t-shirts, coffee mugs, calendars, mouse pads, and much more. Alfred, let's go shopping. Yes, sir. Now Playing's Batman Retrospective series is edited by Brock, Alex, Nick, and Arnie. They scream and they cry. your day now. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. I hate when people talk during the movie. Now Playing is not affiliated with Warner Brothers Pictures or DC Comics. Batman and all that DC's infinite Earths contain are the property and trademark of DC Comics, and no infringement is intended. The law doesn't apply to people like him or us. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. This is why Superman works alone. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. Gotta go! So many people to kill, so little time. You talk about escalation. I don't know how Dark Man. Dark Man. I don't know how Dark. <laughs> I want to review that movie. <laughs> I don't know how Dark Knight Rises is going to meet the challenge. Quite frankly, it. I almost wish they could make a special edition of Batman Begins and CGI her into all of the Katie Holmes scenes. Call Lucas up. He'll do it. He replaced Sebastian Shaw with Hayden Christensen. He'd do this. Thing in order to hide his nocturnal missions. <laughs> nocturnal emissions? Yeah, add a syllable there and I'm real confused. <laughs> well, once he takes care of the insurgent guy, there was one guy that was like, I'm going to put a price on your head. And well, we saw how that turned out. Yes, Spawn. Is that who that was? Yeah, that was Spawn, Michael Jai White. <laughs> That's not Marvel or DC. I never have to watch No, it's that not. Movie, right? Hopefully we can stay clear of that one. Okay, cool. If they make a if they if they reboot it like they're threatening, no promises. Hey, John Leguizamo, I'm always down. As an evil clown. <laughs> you love circuses, but full faith in Nolan. He's proved to me that he could take stupid ideas like a bat pod and the dude from 10 Things I Hate About You and make them amazing. You want Catwoman and Bane and a flying Batmobile? Go for it. I'm going to go for that ride. What about me? <laughs> not you. You're, you're not invited. No Arnie on this one. <laughs> what about me? You can come. <laughs> In the audience. Yes. <laughs> well... I feel I should go back to what I said in my first Dark Knight review way back when that was all of 10 minutes long and took me all of 10 minutes to edit. <laughs> oh, those were the days. Oh, we should go back there. Dark Knight Rises, <laughs> 10 minutes, that's our limit. <laughs> Lots of angry fans. <laughs> Woo!